Hi. My name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at Northview, and I'm our uh, campus pastor at East Abbotsford Campus. And uh, if the video is working this morning, hi, East Abby. Nice to be seen by you. The pirate ship is probably right there on the stage for the play. So uh, if you aren't seeing me, then I'm having a really weird hypothetical moment uh, because the screen's not working and someone else is preaching live there. And that was just a really meta moment for all of us. Uh, One of my... uh, So there's a a famous philosopher these days. Uh, Her name is Taylor Swift. And (laughs) she uh, recently received an honorary doctorate from New York University in Fine Arts. And she delivered a a commencement speech during her uh, time at this event. Here's what she said. I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when. Who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. I have some good news. It's totally up to you. I have, also have some terrifying news. It's totally up to you. I love this quote because uh, Dr. Taylor Swift encapsulates well uh, the me-centered cultural, her degree's as good as my degree, right? It's a immersed degree and an honorary doctorate. They're about the same thing. Uh, we live in a, in a me-centered cultural context. And her quote illustrates that perfectly. We are all of us. We are swimming in a cultural context in a sea called me. And the letter of First Peter, along with the testimony of the rest of scripture, actually conflicts with this sea called me reality that we live in. And the Dr. Taylor Swiftian cultural context that she speaks to. Here's the passage we're going to look at and how uh, this passage conflicts with our me-centered world Verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This passage is uh, fairly simple, but uh, it's challenging nonetheless. There's the one command in this text. It's to love one another earnestly. And here's the logic that the text provides for us. Three things. First, the gospel brings new life. Secondly, the new life is obedient And thirdly, the obedient life loves others. So that's how we're gonna look at this passage uh, together here. We're gonna look at the gospel bringing new life, the new life is obedient, and the obedient life loves others. First, let's look at how the gospel brings new life. First Peter chapter one, verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the grammar in this passage is a little bit interesting for those of us who find grammar interesting. The language of you have been born again is a perfect passive participle. Here's what those words mean. Basically, the perfect part of this grammar structure means that there's been a past action 
You have been born again, but it's a past action with present consequences. You have been born again. And it's passive. It's something that is done to you. You don't birth yourself. You are birthed. So Peter here is saying that you have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. And sometimes when we hear the language of word of God, our mind wants to go immediately to talk about the Bible itself, which is true. The Bible is the word of God. But Peter actually quotes Isaiah, who is talking about uh, the word of God as the promises of God to save. And Peter explains to us, what is this thing that makes us born again? It's the gospel. The gospel brings us new life. The good news of Jesus, that we are sinners who have rebelled against a holy God who need desperately for this holy God to initiate in his saving action towards us. And he does so. He creates a people for himself. He calls them to follow in his ways, but they don't represent him perfectly in their time. And so he sends another, he sends his son, his son named Jesus, the eternal son of God becomes human He comes to be our rescuer, to be our redeemer, to be our sacrifice, to be our substitute. He provides for us what we need to be reconciled to the Father. We have the promises of God, of an eternal life with him, of flourishing in the world that he has created in the way it is designed to be lived for an eternity. We have the uh, joy of the Holy Spirit filling us now. All of the promises that God has for us arrive to us and are given to us. It is something we receive. We are born again. It's a work of God, our salvation. It's by his initiative through our faith that we're born again into a new life. And everything else in this passage is going to come from this foundation that we are born again, that God starts the work in us. He accomplishes the work in us. One of my very favorite passages is John chapter 11. I had the opportunity to preach it during our Easter service last Easter when we were meeting out in tents outside. I love the story where Jesus knows that his friend Lazarus is ill and knows he's going to die, and yet he lets him die. He doesn't save him from a distance, although he could, but he lets him die because he has a purpose in mind. He wants to provide his followers with a story, with an image that we can hold on to for a lifetime. So Lazarus, good old Lazzy, died. And Jesus shows up four days later, and he comes to the tomb of the very dead, very incapable of helping himself, Lazarus. And he looks into that tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And that is what Jesus does for each and every one of us in the gospel. We are born again. He looks at us and says, Howard, get out. Judy, get out of that tomb. Lazarus, it's time to be born again. The gospel is the power of God for our salvation. The command of this text is that we need to love one another earnestly, and that command is rooted in the truth that the gospel brings new life. This is what Paul meant when he wrote to the letter, a letter to the Romans, his thesis statement in that great letter that Paul wrote. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by 
Faith, this is the verse that revolutionized Martin Luther's life and that became the spark of the Protestant Reformation. We are born again by God's initiative. The command of this text is clear. We have to love one another earnestly. And everything else from this, found, from this passage is rooted in this truth that the gospel brings new life. Secondly, the new life is obedient. Verse 22 of 1 Peter chapter one says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. What is going on here? We were just told that we were born again. Remember that grammar lesson we went through? It was fantastic. Didn't you love it? We just learned about the perfect passive participle, the perfect, the past action that has present implications. The passive, it was done to us. You are born again. You have been born again. It was something done to you. And yet here, we have other grammar, similar grammar, but a little different, still interesting. It's the perfect active participle. Here's what that means, perfect. It's an action that's happened in the past that has present implications and consequences and it's active. It's something that we do ourselves. So here's what Peter is saying. We are the ones who have purified ourselves. Doesn't that feel a little like, Peter, have you not read the Bible? What is he talking about? That's what the scripture says, so we can't just duck it and put it inside our neat theological uh, box and say, well, that verse must not actually be true because it doesn't cohere with the other things I think. The Bible says we are the ones who purify ourselves. What is Peter talking about? That word for purification comes from the word uh, that is talked about in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, for the same word for uh, consecrating something or setting something apart for a particular purpose. So I think that the sense that this verse is trying to communicate to us is that having set yourself apart by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. In other words, Christians are to, for themselves, set themselves apart unto a life of obedience to Jesus. Christians are commanded to live in a distinct set apart kind of way in obedience to Jesus. True Christians who have been born again, work of God, set themselves apart for obedience. Sometimes the Bible conflicts with things we think are already true and makes us go, hmm. Here's the point. For Peter, there is no such thing as a disobedient Christian. Christians set themselves apart by obedience. Doesn't this sound like works? It sounds like works, right? Which seems to conflict with what Paul just said, that we are saved by the gospel, yes? James chapter two. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Good job, you passed the theology test. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons have great theology. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Here's an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see the faith You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Remember the Romans verse that Martin Luther loved? It's this passage in James that Martin Luther thought this book shouldn't even be in the Bible. It's so clearly not what Jesus is about, Martin Luther thought, because it's saying we're saved by our works. It's saying that obedience is actually necessary for salvation, but that's actually the testimony of the scriptures. And sometimes when the things we think are true conflict with what the Bible clearly teaches, instead of shoving the Bible aside, we have to say, maybe I should reevaluate what I think. It is true that God causes us to be born again. It is also true that we set ourselves apart for obedience to Jesus. Both of those are necessary if we wanna actually have an authentic Christianity. See, what this is getting after is the difference between nominalism and discipleship. Nominalism is basically just assenting, mentally believing the story and the promises of the gospel, that everything that God has for you comes through Jesus, that you can have eternal life, that you can have eternal hope, that you will live a flourishing life eternally because of Jesus. Nominalism says, I believe that to be true, but it actually doesn't decide to follow Jesus. It says, I wanna have the faith, but I'm not actually going to accompany it with any kind of works. I'm not gonna set myself apart. Nominalism treats the church like a consumer product. We attend, we give money, we receive what we want from the church. We get preaching and music and programming and experiences. And nominalism sits back and relaxes and says, I need to do absolutely nothing in the Christian life. The challenge is that institutional Christianity can actually thrive for decades on nominalism. Because nominal Christianity is sufficient to actually build buildings and give big amounts of money and put lots of bodies in a building. Nominalism can do that. But what this passage in Peter is telling us about is a radical call to discipleship. See, discipleship is believing the good news of the gospel, that everything that God has for us, all the benefits, all the joys, all the hope, all the promises found only and ever in Jesus. And he is the one who initiates a saving work inside of us. We believe that to be true as disciples. And in light of it, we give everything to him. Every aspect of our life is now put under his lordship. 
because we find him to be the smartest, wisest, most compelling person alive today. And we say, because the gospel is true and because you are who you say you are, I give you every inch of my life. Discipleship is entrusting everything to Jesus. Discipleship leans forward and it exerts an effort and it says, I'm going to set myself apart to live in obedience to Jesus because of the scandal of the promises offered to me by him. I don't obey in order to be saved. I obey because I am. And we set ourselves apart to follow in his ways. Discipleship sees the church not as a product for us to consume and evaluate, but a team to contribute to. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, says this in like every book he's ever written. Grace, the gospel, is opposed to earning, not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. The command of our text is to love one another earnestly. And the logic of this passage is rooted in the truth that the gospel brings new life and the new life is obedient. Thirdly, let's actually get to the command of the passage. The obedient life loves others. First Peter 1 Chapter or verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. The command of our text is to love one another. And I love that word earnestly. It's this word for fervently or intentionally or over and over again, repeated behavior. It's this intentionality. It's this fixation. My son teaches me about what it looks like to be fixated on something. This past week, we went to Great Wolf Lodge and my son, when we were in the room, wanted to be not in the room. And so what he would do is he would go to the hotel door and he would constantly try to open the door. We had to put the little lock on the top because a few times he got out in the hallway and he started going and we were like, stay in the room. But we'd bring him back. He would fixate and go right back. He was earnest in his desire to leave the room. He was compelled. He was focused. The, the backdrop to my last few days when I was at Great Wolf Lodge was the clicking of the handle of that door. In the same way, Christians, we are to be fixated on our love for others. The backdrop to our lives should be the click, click, click of how can I love my brother or sister, consist like a metronome driving our life forward, the clicking of the handle of the door. Every decision we make, asking ourselves the question, in that moment, big or small, am I loving others by doing this? Here's the problem with prepping a sermon and spending time in God's word is that it convicts you. And you have to be convicted before you actually preach it. So this past week, I'm at the drugstore. And there's, I don't know if you've heard, there's a Tylenol shortage. So if you want kids Tylenol, you can't find it. So every time I go into a store, I'm like, let's see if they have Tylenol. Why not? Maybe my kids will get a fever. One kid's in preschool, the other kid's in school. We've had a cold since February. We'll probably need Tylenol. 
So I go to the store this week and I go to the Tylenol section and I'm expecting to see nothing. And what do I see? Two double packs. The holy grail of dad life. And what do I do? I grab both boxes. And what do I hear? Click, click, click. And I think to myself, should I take both? What if someone else is in the store right now and their kid actually has a fever? And now they can't find Tylenol and this is probably the seventh store they've been to. And I thought, fine, I'll leave one back. Because the Christian life is a life of earnestly loving others. The command of our text is simple and clear, but man, is it difficult and costly to live out. People who are born again, who have set themselves apart for a life of obedience to Jesus are characterized and marked by their love for others in general and their love for other Christians in particular. And this is so radically different from the cultural moment that we live in, which is basically summarized in what some people call expressive individualism. Basically, it means this. In our culture, the purpose in life is to personally enjoy as much as we can while we are here. That's what the Dr. Taylor Swift would say. Everything is about you. And one of the challenges is that Christians in recent days have actually baptized expressive individualism and called it a form of Christianity. And it's been bubbling to the surface in what I think we can call something like an autonomous Christianity. Autonomous just means uh, self-law. Who gets to call the shots on what my life should look like? A me. No one else can tell me what to do or when to do it because I am me. I swim in the sea called me and I love the water. Autonomous Christianity has both a left cultural form and a right cultural form. The left cultural form of autonomous Christianity is sometimes called progressive Christianity. It's typically defined by this repudiation of the commands of scripture that don't actually line up with what we want to believe. And it's usually about things to do with sexual ethics or gender ideology. And we think to ourselves, look, as long as we're loving people, we can do whatever we want. Don't tell me what to do. But autonomous Christianity also has a right form. And it's typically defined by a repudiation of the commands and teachings that are others-centric in their mindset and a call to obedience. We say to ourselves, as long as I love Jesus, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, and no one can tell me otherwise because I am me. I swim in a sea called me, and I like the water here. But that baptized form of expressive individualism is not actually Christianity. Because Christianity is about submitting ourselves in our thought and our deed in our every aspect of life to the lordship and command of Jesus. We have to apprentice ourselves to him. We have to commit ourselves to living in his ways. So look, sometimes it's popular for us to talk about in, in these Christian circles to talk about the dangers that come at us from the left in our culture. But the reality is that there are also dangers that come from the right. I have a daughter, she's four. I teach her all the time 
I tell her all the time before you cross the road, you need to look both left and right because there are dangers that will run you over. And as a pastor of this church, I feel compelled to warn you, my friends, my church family, you need to look both to the left and the right for the dangers that will run you over. The world around us is trying to persuade you that life is about you and what you want, and that's not actually how reality works. Life is about Jesus. It's about following him. Authentic Christianity actually looks like believing the gospel to such an extent that we love the God who gives us the gospel and we live in obedience to him, which Jesus tells us over and over again, if you really wanna love me, love one another. That's what it looks like. It's so simple, but man, is it costly and difficult. Because our hope in life and death is that we actually belong not to ourselves, My hope is not that I am my own. My hope is that I belong to Jesus. Because I belong to him, I will follow him when he tells me to go in his ways. And how we treat others is actually a key characteristic of true love for Jesus. Matthew 25, Jesus tells this story. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, speaking specifically about Christians, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me and naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Come on, Jesus. And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Doesn't that sound harsh? Doesn't that sound like works, maybe even kind of legalistic for us? But look, it aligns exactly with what Jesus' brother James told us. True Saving 
faith, believes the gospel to be true and gives everything in return to the God of the gospel. And that finds an expression primarily in how we treat other Christians. It's a simple command, but man, is it difficult and costly. I also think it aligns with what God tells us in the Ten Commandments. Here's what I mean by that. Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So why do I say that this passage in Exodus is actually the same kind of thing of what was being talked about in Matthew 25? Here's, let me take us on a little bit of a journey on this passage. Oftentimes when we read the verse to not take the Lord's name in vain, what we think to ourselves is something like someone saying, oh my God, or Jesus Christ as a swear word. And definitely we need to hold the Lord's name with reverence. We shouldn't be flippant about how we talk about the Lord who has saved us. And yet this verse is actually pointing at something a bit different. It has a broader application for us. What the word take means in the original Hebrew is actually to carry something or to bear something, to represent something. And this very same word to take is actually described of the high priest's clothing. When the high priest of Israel would walk into the temple. He would be wearing garments. And on his garments, there's elaborate descriptions of it in Exodus 28. On his garments, he would be uh, wearing these 12 jewels. And the 12 jewels represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And the, the passage in, exec, in Exodus 28 tells us that the high priest bears the names of the tribes of Israel. So when the high priest goes in to sacrifice for the sins of the people, he is bearing the people. He is representing Israel in front of God. He is taking their name. So in order for us to take the name of the Lord, what we are doing is we are representing God. In the same way that when God looks at the high priest and he sees the 12 jewels on his clothing and he says, you are a representation of what Israel is like, so too, God says, we should not take the name of the Lord in vain. We should represent God well which fits really well with what Exodus 19 says, where it says, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. This is on Mount Sinai when he's giving the law. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, because you are my saved people, he says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my command, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Here's what God is saying to the people of Israel through Moses. In the same way that the priest bears and represents Israel to God in the temple, so too you, kingdom of priests, my saved people, represent me to the world. You take my name to the world. You bear my name. And what does this command tell us? Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Do not be the kind of people who miss represent the God who has saved you by his own actions. 
God's people are called to be a kingdom of priests who bear the name of God himself in the world. Here's what scholar and author Dr. Carmen Imes says about this in her book, Bearing the Name. She says, at Sinai, the Lord warns the people not to bear his name in vain. Keeping this command then involves much more than not saying, oh, Yahweh, when someone cuts you off, cuts in front of you on the freeway, or a disgruntled Jesus Christ when your team misses the touchdown pass. Keeping the command not to bear Yahweh's name in vain changes everything about how we live. To bear his name in vain would be to enter into his covenant relationship with him, but to live no differently than the surrounding pagans. What God is telling his people is, look, I have saved you for myself and now follow me. Become more like Jesus. The Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is something that's developed in us. The Spirit produces this Christ-likeness in us. Paul also tells us in Colossians 3, we should wake up in the morning and put clothes on that look like gentleness and kindness and respect. God does it in us, but we also do the work. People should be able to see the church and get an accurate, although imperfect, reflection of who our God is. People should be able to look at how the church treats one another and say that God is glorious. This commandment is saying to not take representing God to the world seriously, to take the name of the Lord in vain, is to fundamentally misunderstand what salvation is all about. Or in other words, we cannot have Jesus as our savior if he's not actually our Lord. This is a hard word, right? Here's the thing. I've been a member at Northview for over 20 years. And I've been a pastor on the team here for over 10. So as someone who has been with us for a while, but not as long as some of you, here's something that is on my heart. I actually think we can do better at loving one another. I think these past two years have shown that we don't necessarily take the command to hear the click, click, click in the everyday moments and decisions and interactions that we have with other Christians. I know it's been a hard two years and I know we're frustrated and we all have different opinions. What I also know is that we are called to love one another earnestly. And friends, I think we can do better. I think the way that I've heard people speak about each other and treat one another, how we've spoken about our governing authorities, the callousness that I've heard from people about the immunocompromised and the medically vulnerable, the way that we as Christians have walked these past two years in our homes and our families and our schools and our social media pages have not always accurately reflected our God. Our God is an aggressively, proactively, others-centric kind of God. Jesus left everything behind to save us while we were still spitting in his face. 
And he says, if you want the promises of the gospel, receive them. You are born again by the power of the gospel and now set yourselves apart for obedience to Jesus. And what does obedience to Jesus actually look like? It looks like loving one another's. And friends, I think, I think I know by the Spirit's empowering, I know we can be better. To the degree that it's true for us that we have not walked these past few years aggressively others-minded and instead have bought into the cultural Kool-Aid that everything is actually about me and getting things that I want the way I want them, we need to repent. We need to joyfully repent because the good news of Christianity is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, you are always welcome back. I know you have sinned, but come back. Don't, don't shove your sin under the carpet. Don't say you didn't make mistakes. Admit every single one of us have made mistakes these past two years and how we have treated other Christians. And the call of the scriptures for us is to return to Jesus in repentance. He will cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness and he will say, now come, sin no more and follow me. David Brooks was reflecting on some of the news that was coming out about some denominational stuff in the States and some abuse that's been coming out. Some horrific stuff of how Christians have treated each other. And David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times and in his article, The Southern Baptist Moral Meltdown, he wrote these words. Character is not measured by a person's beliefs, but by the ability to see the full humanity of others. It is not automatic. It's a skill acquired slowly. It's about being able to focus on what's going on in your own mind and simultaneously focus on what's going on in another mind. It's about learning how to be minutely, how, how to minutely observe, absorb, and resonate with other people's emotions. It's spiritual training to get out of your own egotistic, self-referential thinking and into the habit of asking, what's this moment like for that other person? He almost sounds like a Christian. My friends, Jesus loves us more than we could ever imagine. He came and saved us while we were still sinners. But he doesn't just come to us and say, think about this good news and feel warm thoughts about it. He looks us dead in the eye. And he says, if you want these promises, then you come and follow me. And what does following Jesus actually look like? It looks like loving others. The gospel brings new life. The new life is obedient to Jesus. And the obedient life loves others. So my question for each and every one of us is will we opt for a life of nominalism sing the songs, come to church, give the money, consume the products? Or will we actually take Jesus up on his invitation to a life of following him? In the everyday stuff of life, in the little moments and the big ones, will we ask ourselves, how would Jesus want me to respond now?
So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word because it is true. Everything else around us can be a lie, but your word is true. Father, would you help us see and understand the ways in which every single one of us have lived for ourselves and not for the good of others? Father, would you give us the courage and the bravery to confess? To confess to you and to confess to others that I have been wrong. I have treated you wrong. Father, would you give us the assurance by your spirit that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you by your spirit enable us to be the kind of people who are doers of your word and not just hearers only. Father, I pray that you would make us the kind of people who do not bear your name in vain, but that when people look at Northview Community Church, they would say their God is glorious. We need your help. We pray this for Jesus' fame and in his name. Amen.